Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Morning, Augie. Morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Good, 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 good. My parents are getting their vaccines, which is excellent. And, and we get to talk to Judy Twig today. Hi, Judy. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Nia? I'm good. Thank you. My parents are finally, they finally got their vaccine, their first round, and they're in their 80s, which makes me happier than if I had gotten it because I'm so stressed about my parents. Um, but that leads me to asking you, who is the expert on international health, um, how's this vaccine thing going? It seems a little bumpy. Let me say that the rollout seems a little bumpy. Is that true worldwide or is that just the United States is special? Well, in the United States, it's just completely friggin' chaotic right now. Um, it, no, no other way to put it. Um, it. It's a situation where demand far exceeds supply. Um, distribution from the federal government to the states is fairly smooth, but the states are by and large doing things in an incredibly um, haphazard manner. And so, you know, like Nia, you just said, you know, you were so happy that your parents got vaccinated. My parents also are both vaccinated now. My mom had her second dose yesterday. Um, but getting these vaccinations for your parents or for yourself, if you are eligible by age or by uh, occupation or pre-existing condition, um, it's like getting tickets to a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, you have to, uh, you know, stand by whatever website or phone number or um, list of websites and phone numbers for pharmacies and local health departments and, uh, you know, raceways and stadiums, you know, wh wherever they're giving it, um, you know, you just keep trying all these different places. You join the Facebook groups where they are posting rumors about who might have vaccine next week and where you need to call and at what time. And, and it's a, uh, it's challenging. It's challenging it was, for many, many people. It was a fair bit of drama for my parents because they are not internet savvy. My mother is fairly certain that she has the keyboard that controls the nuclear codes in the United States. And so she presses the buttons that way. Like she's really a nervous internet user. Um, and when we got her a camera for Christmas so we could Zoom, she was very worried about the camera and being watched. She was like, Mom, the camera's not on until you turn it on. It's fine. But so for people like that, I imagine it's even more of a struggle considering that this has a, largely been an internet-based appointment system. Absolutely. And when you look at the uh, preliminary research that's being done to determine who among our senior populations are getting first access to the vaccines, who's being successful at getting appointments, it turns out that it's older people who have adult daughters to make the appointment for them who are having the most success. Not adult children, but adult daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Not to denigrate the many adult men who are out there doing this for, for their parents, but it, it seems like it's it's the daughters who are taking care of this for their parents. So yes, yeah, seniors can't, you know, in, in many cases aren't on the internet at all. When they are, many times they're not internet savvy. Even when it's phone calls, you know, with my mom, it was a phone number and 
she lives in a small county in rural Western Maryland. So there hasn't been this large number of options that we had to keep track of for her. It was just paying attention to the health department announcements and understanding that there was one number that she had to call and that line would go open at, it was 10 o'clock on a Thursday. Um, And so that means starting at 10 o'clock on Thursday, you had to just keep hitting redial for that number over and over again until you got through. It took me 45 minutes. And in, in, that was actually the third session where I, I was eventually successful. You know, how many 80-year-olds have the capacity to sit there and hit a number on speed dial for 45 minutes until they, until they finally get through? So. Well, and if that's happening here, is that happening around the world? I mean, is that a consistent problem that we're seeing in sort of the preliminary literature? Are seniors everywhere struggling in that way? It's such a vastly different situation depending on where you are. So let's, you know, of course my mind goes immediately to Russia um, since that's the part of the world I spend most of my time thinking about. And it's the opposite situation in Russia. Um, Supply exceeds demand. Uh, People in Russia are uh, distrustful of anything done or produced by a government to begin with. They're particularly distrustful of the Sputnik V vaccine that has been developed by Russia, um, which in some senses is unfortunate because as it turns out, the vaccine is safe and is effective. Um, you know, Russia has produced a sound, effective vaccine, um, but they approved it back in August before it had even entered phase three large scale human clinical trials, which means they put the cart so far beyond horse in scientific and and regulatory terms. And so even now that there's been a publication in The Lancet, one of the top peer-reviewed international medical journals in the world, um, scientists from around the world have looked at the data, said, yep, this is the real thing. It's a good vaccine. And Russians are still saying, yeah, I'm not so sure. Um, So now you can walk into clinics all over Moscow, no wait, no demonstration that you belong to any particular priority category or risk group. You can just walk in, get the vaccine. Um, they, they have it to spare. And ha- in fact, they have it to spare that they're exporting it to other countries um, without too much fear of political blowback from Russians that they're giving it to others before Russians are all covered because Russians aren't banging down the door to get this vaccine. Um, I can't help sharing just while we're on the subject of Russia and how absurd some of their processes are. Many of my Russian friends, because they're distrustful of this first Sputnik V vaccine, are waiting for Russia's second vaccine. It's called Epivac Corona. It was developed by a lab called the Vector Institute, which is way out in the middle of nowhere, Siberia, in Novosibirsk. Um, The Vector Institute was the Soviet Union's main bioweapons lab then converted into a civilian biological research facility. And, and they're more interested in trusting that. Okay, yep, sorry, go well, ahead. So, but, and as far as we know, Vector really is just a civilian facility now. Oh, okay. Put, put any footnote on that sentence that, that you'd like, but as, you know, as far as we know, they, they are adhering to the Biological Weapons Convention, no longer a bioweapons research facility. Um, but- I mean, the jokes just write themselves. 
Yeah. Right. Well, and, and so <laughs> they, I haven't even told the story of this vaccine yet. Um, and so you, you don't even know yet the reason why I go into this level of detail. So people are waiting for this um, vector vaccine, despite the fact that they approved that one in the middle of October before it had started phase three trials, but they haven't yet launched it in a big way. Um, you know, it, it, it appears as though they've waited for at least some of that phase three trial data to come out before they've started putting it into civilian circulation. And right now there, there are like 40,000 doses that have been sent out around the country. So there are a lot of people in Russia, educated people who are waiting for this second vaccine because there is perception that it's more appropriate for older people, that it's just safer because they didn't rush it under political pressure or to try to score public relations points. So like I said, they've rolled out about 40,000 doses of it. So there is now, um, over the last couple of weeks, there has been a closed group on one of Russia's main social media platforms. It's called Telegram. There's a closed Telegram group of people who have received this vector vaccine, then gone out on their own and got antibody tests and discovered that they have zero antibodies to coronavirus. So they you know, have been conferring among themselves and doing the, hey, what's up with this uh, questioning. So they wrote an open letter to Vector and to the, um, to the state regulatory body. Um, it's called the Rasputrednabzor, uh, the, the state um, consumer welfare protection agency, um, the body that um, oversees Vector wrote an open letter saying, hey, what's the deal? And Vector responded to them by saying, oh no, you do have antibodies. It's just that your antibodies are only visible on a very specific antibody test developed by Vector. <laughs> so <laughs> that is now- well, I tell you, you have antibodies, you have antibodies. Right, yes. Uh, and as it turns out, um, as they've published um, some of the data on Vector, um, one of the things that's been published is the list of patent holders for the Vector vaccine. And it turns out that one of the patent holders is the head of Rasputrednabzor, the regulatory agency that oversees not only Vector, but oversees all vaccine production and distribution in the country. So wow. um, that's interesting. And that, that story about this second vaccine is one that's just starting to get traction in, in the Russian media. Um, so, yeah, so things are interesting there. Um, so yeah. that's sort of the Theranos of, of yeah. Russia right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yes, from one single drop of blood, we can determine everything about you that's ever been known. Um, okay, so... That's unfortunate they're waiting for a vaccine that probably doesn't work when they have a vaccine that does work, but they yes. perceive that it is not safe. And I know that there's reluctance in the United States because of the speed of, of the sort of vaccine um, <clears throat> trials and stuff. Can you speak to like how, how do vaccines get funded? How is that a, how do they come into being and how do they come into being so quickly in this particular instance? So nobody cut any corners in development of any of the vaccines that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. So um, very much unlike the situation in Russia, in the United States, um, I, these two things can be true at the same time. We took our time we made sure that we followed all established procedures. We didn't you know, leapfrog over any established regulatory hurdles. 
we also developed good vaccines more quickly than vaccines have ever been developed before. And the reason for that is that we poured a lot of money into it and, and we put a huge number of people on it, um, gave them all the resources that they needed, and that was absolutely the right thing to do in a time of global crisis. Um, where'd the money come from? A lot of it came from the United States government. A lot of it came from sort of resources of pharmaceutical companies that understood that there would very likely be an enormous return on that investment. I mean, think about this. You've got a pharmaceutical product that is going to be taken by every person on the planet eventually. Um, so there's a, th th this is a multi, multi-billion dollar business. Everybody wanted to be in it. So, um, so how did we do it? Well, one of, one of the ways that the money got into the process was through pre-purchase agreements where rich countries like the United States, uh, some countries in Western Europe, um, definitely the United Kingdom, um, Japan, a handful of other Asian countries, Australia, Canada, um, they invested resources in the development process for these vaccines by pre-purchasing large numbers of those vaccines, literally hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, a couple of the others. Um, and so we made a lot of bets and we diversified those bets, right? And, and this was a smart thing to do in this situation. Um, you know, it's like if you play the stock market, you, if, if you've got a million dollars to invest, you don't put your whole million dollars in one stock, you diversify your portfolio. Well, that's exactly because you know that you know, some of those stocks will do well, some of them won't do so well. You just try to be smart about how you create a portfolio that, you know, you've picked more winners than losers. So that's exactly what rich country governments did at the beginning of the pandemic, when they realized that there would be a need for vaccine against this pathogen, and that there were many different developers working on the problem using many different technologies. I mean, the other thing that's extraordinary about this is that all these vaccines are different and they all use different platforms for, uh, for inspiring antibodies to develop in, uh, in the bloodstream. Um, and so we um, basically pre-purchased, you know, hundreds of millions, you know, when you get to the total pre-purchasing, it's up to billions of doses from Pfizer, from Moderna, from AstraZeneca, so that they had the resources that they needed to develop the product. And what that means is that, you know, some of them are gonna pay off and some of them don't, but at the end of the day, what's happened is that we end up with countries like the United States, UK, Canada, now sitting on the rights to hundreds of millions of dollars, more doses than we actually need. You know, after we vaccinate everybody in the United States, we're still gonna have some left over at the end of the day um, because we, did such a good job at developing such an enormously robust, diverse portfolio at the um, at the beginning. So that's that that's in very broad brushstrokes. That's how the money picture has worked. But you said rich countries. Yep. And there's there's those like what is that like the top twenty five or thirty nations, and then there's everybody else that starts with diminishing amounts of money. What happens to them? Well, so globally, this is always the way it works, right? So it should come to no, as no surprise to anybody that in this case, as has been the case with every other um, pharmaceutical product needed to tackle a global infectious disease crisis or, or any kind of global disease crisis, the rich countries get first dibs and generally they get new products um, years before 
poor countries get them, if the poor countries ever get them at all. The most glaring example of this was with antiretroviral meds for HIV AIDS. Um, you may remember from back in the 80s uh, when HIV AIDS first developed that it started um, in the United States and to a lesser extent in Western Europe, but very quickly uh, came to ravage places like Haiti, um, uh, Southern Africa, East Africa. Um, and yet the antiretroviral uh, meds, which have gotten a lot better over time, but they did save lives even when they were first developed, um, it was a couple of years before those were available to anybody in parts of the world other than the rich United States, Western Europe, Canada. Um, it, was, it was an atrocity that that's the way it played out. Millions of millions of people died in Sub-Saharan Africa before the global community figured out how to push the prices of those drugs down and provide the financing so that people who needed them could get them in Sub-Saharan Africa. So in the case of COVID-19, um, there have been good heads thinking about this problem. And so early on, uh, the global health community working through WHO, um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had a lot to do with it. Uh, a, a couple of other global health institutions came up with a facility called COVAX. And COVAX is an instrument designed to prevent what happened with HIV AIDS happening with COVID-19. And so the deal was that through this COVAX facility, you would get a portfolio of vaccines that would be purchased largely by rich countries because poor countries don't have money to put, you know, put into the kettle for this. Um, so rich countries would pitch in to this fund and this fund would buy, again, a diversified portfolio of vaccines and the recipients of the vaccines purchased through this financing mechanism would be first and foremost, 20% of the populations of low and middle income countries around the world. So the idea is that by hitting that 20% mark, you would get the people most at risk. You'd get the frontline health workers, you'd get the teachers, you know, you'd get the people who um, have contact with the, uh, with the population. So enough to cover 20% of people in low and middle income countries, but then rich country would also get some of this portfolio of vaccines. And the reason that that provision is in there is that it gives the rich countries an incentive to invest in this whole mechanism, right? It, it's another way that rich countries can diversify their portfolio of vaccines. Um, if they get some of the COVAX pot, then if their own pre-purchasing didn't work out, they get some of the ones that work out of, out of the COVAX mechanism. Okay. So it took a while for COVAX to get off the ground. Um, very logically, poor and middle-income countries signed up right away, because right? you know, there's obvious benefit in it for them. Um, a couple of the Western European governments signed up right off the bat, Canada, Japan, Australia, you know, your, your typical sort of good citizen, uh, good global citizen country signed up right off the bat. Um, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that the United States under the Trump administration um, not only did not sign up, but very loudly and defiantly did not sign up for this mechanism. This was after Trump had withdrawn the United States from the World Health Organization. This was after Trump had been 
quite explicit about his disdain for any kind of uh, multilateralism in general. And it was after Trump had been very much on the America first bandwagon, you know, not just for COVID-19, but for everything else. Um, so the United States- I mean, not, yeah. I don't, we don't like NATO, we don't like the UN, we don't exactly. like, yeah. right? Like any organization where people have to come together and work together yeah. and- and that there is potential for having to compromise in order to achieve a goal, I suspect right. was part of the problem with um, the previous administration's struggle to uh, compromise. Right. Yeah. And it was also a way for Trump to play to his substantial political base by saying, I'm going to take care of you, Americans, you know, and, and we're not going to take care of all those other people uh, before we take care of you. Yeah, it's the same argument of we shouldn't give finance, we shouldn't give aid to the world. And I'm like, aid is like, what, 1% of the budget or something? It's not, but it falls into that similar line of thinking of, you know, it's less when than, you look at, it's, I'm sorry? It's less, it's less than one, one tenth of 1% of the federal government budget. Yeah. And yeah. yet that seems yeah. to be an argument that gets made in some corners. But right. anyway. And, and it also fits into the whole, um, sort of protectionist argument with global trade. You know, we're not going to freely trade with others. We're going to protect American workers by throwing up quotas and tariffs and, and you know, all these other things that um, that that Trump talked about. Um, and, and I introduced that because um, broadly in not just the long term, but in, in the medium term and in many cases in the short term, um, that's an incredibly short-sighted strategy, that America first strategy. Um, because in the long term, we are interdependent with everybody else and things that benefit everybody else have a way of coming back to benefit us as well. None of this is a zero sum game and it's incorrect to paint the picture that way. Um, it, it's just ill-informed to paint the picture that way. So uh, COVID-19 illustrates this better than anything else, right? If there's gonna be an, an outbreak of an infectious disease that has the potential to impact everybody on the planet, wouldn't you be better off investing in capacity everywhere around the world to prevent, detect, stop the spread of that pathogen at its source rather than wait for it to come past your borders and impact your own population. So when Trump pulled out of WHO, um, one of the byproducts of that was closing down um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's office in China that was doing things like helping scientists in China, oh, I don't know, uh, be open about detecting and reporting outbreaks of pathogens in wet markets that then spread throughout China and then to Western Europe and the West Coast of the United States and turn into the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So you can, you can literally draw a pretty straight line between Trump's America first pull out of multilateral mechanisms straight to whether or not we could have gotten a handle on COVID-19 much earlier than we did. Well, that's a happy thought. So that's a happy thought. Yeah. So, um, but, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, the story gets better as we go along. I mean, just literally in the last couple of weeks, the story gets better. So, um, so basically the United States was not um, a member of the COVAX facility. Um, not surprisingly, um, the Biden administration signed up right off the bat 
um, gave $2 billion to COVAX, which enormously um, it gave it an enormous boost. Um, also pledged $2 billion more dollars contingent on other rich country governments matching it. So oh. now we're creating incentives for others to come on board as well. Um, Sorry, that um, just as an interrupt, that makes me think of the NPR thing where somebody will call oh, yeah, in and say, I will give $1,000 if the next five people will, will match it. And, you know, and it works. That That's kind exactly of fundraising it works. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> a very, yeah. it encourages that whole, oh, well, if you'll, if you'll match me, then I'll give money because that's double the, the benefit. And that's that that's that pattern that incentive structure is something that shows up in global health all the time right you know Bill Gates with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will say you know I'll put up a couple hundred million dollars for something but national governments have to match. Um, oh okay so, anyway, so that's a standard. COVAX okay. isn't the first time we've seen something like that. So so COVAX looked at one point like it was in danger of being dead in the water as a mechanism. Now it is uh, not quite there yet, but on the verge of, of something that I would describe as, as, as robust and thriving. Um, so the first shipments of um, COVAX financed vaccine went into Ghana a couple of days ago, about 400,000 doses went to Ghana. I think deliveries to Cote d'Ivoire happened today. Um, so that, that engine is now accelerating. With, with COVAX. Um, the Biden administration and th these conversations are still early. It, it's taking longer than we'd like for the Biden team to get confirmed and, and set up, but we, we're already seeing the Biden administration starting to, to get some movement on bilateral aid for COVID-19, um, apart from the COVAX facility, just the United States um, helping with country. Um, and not so much donating vaccine, we're not yet to the point where where we should do that, right? You know, we wanna make sure that all Americans who want vaccines get them before we start just handing vaccine over to other parts of the world. But we're helping a lot in other places with capacity building, um, with, you know, distribution channels, um, delivery systems, that kind of thing. You said Russians don't want their vaccines. So will they donate vaccines to this COVAX thing? Are they part of the... No, they're the not system. a part of COVAX because they're trying so hard to make, to score political points off of their Sputnik V, v vaccine. So this is a really interesting dynamic. And I'm, I'm, I'm at the beginning stages of writing an article about this. So I'm, I'm going to talk this argument out loud with you now to try to, to get it straight in, in my head for this piece that, uh, that I'm thinking about writing. So, so what we've been saying about the Russians and the Sputnik V from vaccine from the very beginning is that it's been a huge gamble that Putin took, right? To, back in August 11th, when, when they announced approval, you know, formal registration of the Sputnik V vaccine, that was the first COVID vaccine in the world that was approved by any national government. And so they made a huge splash um, about it. Um, and, uh, and they wanted to make political points off of this, right? They wanted, you know, Russia's back, it's a great power, it's a scientific power again. And from the very beginning, they've been saying, and we will share our great discovery with the rest of the world. So this was just one data point of many that had already accumulated with Russia trying to take advantage of the vacuum that was created when Trump pulled us out of all these multilateral mechanisms. So when Trump pulls us away from WHO, even before COVID, Russia had been taking advantage of that empty space left by the United States 
withdrawing from WHO, Russia had been saying, that's cool. We can play some of those functions. You know, we can go in and build some of that goodwill, use some of that diplomatic power. And so Russia put people in WHO on uh, efforts related to control of chronic illness, non-communicable disease, um, tuberculosis. You know, there, there are now prominent Russians in many high-level positions at WHO where they've kind of, you know, filled in that shifting ground as, as the United States retreated. So COVID-19 just left Russia another very visible opportunity to do this. When Trump says, we're out of COVAX, we're America first, we're not gonna share our vaccines with the rest of the world. And, and not only are we not gonna to contribute to the rest of the world's effort to get vaccine, but we're gonna damage that effort by pre-purchasing so much of the vaccine that hasn't even been manufactured yet um, by pre-purchasing you know, three times more doses than we could possibly need to vaccinate our own people. Um, you know, again, from a portfolio diversification standpoint, you understand why the United States did that, but from a rest of the world watching this happen perspective, you can understand why poor people around the rest of the world were pretty pissed off watching that happen. Um, and then Russia steps in and says, we have this great vaccine first in the world. It's only is about $20 for a full two dose course of it. And we will very generously make that available to the rest of the world. So it's this, it, it, it was a gamble that paid off and really it, it, it looked like Russia was gonna be able to accrue some significant diplomatic advantage, some soft power um, and, and to, to date, um, I, I mean, I've lost count. We're up to like 30, 31 countries in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa that have had their own national regulatory agencies approve the Sputnik V vaccine. Um, some of the uh, uh, several thousand doses have already been delivered to Argentina. Um, Thousands of doses have been delivered to Mexico. Most interestingly, a bunch of doses have been delivered to a couple of Central European countries. You know, those countries that were in the Soviet or orbit during the Cold War and are now NATO members. So Hungary, a member of the European Union, is kind of bucking European Union regulations by having approved and now delivering the Sputnik V vaccine to Hungarian citizens. So, you know, it looked like Russia had played this just right from their perspective. This looked like an enormous diplomatic win for them, except now that Biden won the election, now that Biden has joined COVAX, now that the Biden administration is out there sort of filling in that vacuum that was created in a really aggressive way in, in the global health space, I wonder whether the window is kind of closing on, or not closing, it'll never completely close, but, but, but that window is, is narrowing now on, on the Sputnik V vaccine. And in other words, in many of these countries that have said yes to Russia's offer of Sputnik V, well, as the United States, as UK, as Western Europe, as the COVAX facility comes to these countries and say, well, look, we have the AstraZeneca vaccine. We have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We would like to make this available to you. Um, given the choice between Johnson & Johnson and Sputnik V, most of these countries are going to pick Johnson & Johnson, right? They're, they're going to pick the vaccine from an established Western pharmaceutical company with a long track record of success and, and coming from countries that are part of the, you know, sort of Western democratic liberal international order. 
So I, I, I get a feeling that Russia's moment in the sun from, from a diplomatic, from a, a soft power perspective, um, that moment may be um, sort of waning now. We're, we're at the beginning of, of seeing the contraction of the benefit that Russia can experience from this. It seems kind of unfair. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but if it's a good vaccine, right? Like, oh, and I, I mean, so I, I'm, I understand why you would choose Johnson and Johnson because they are the baby powder that you used on your baby 30 years ago, right? Like, I get it, except that, man, any port in a storm, right? If your vaccine oh, works and we can't get anything else, I, I also even if we could get something, wouldn't that come down to price? And I think Augie had a question too, but I'm just lamenting a little, not because, let me be clear to listeners, I am not a fan of Vladimir Putin. I'm not saying, oh, I feel sorry for him because I think he's kind of a, I think he's stripped a lot of the the money and wealth out of Russia for himself. And <clears throat> I have a rather negative view of that. But if the Sputnik V works, it, it seems kind of sad that companies, that countries would say, just because you're Russian, we don't want your vaccine. Well, and I don't, so I'm talking about longer term, you know, over months and years, choices that countries will make. From a global health perspective, of course, we need all the good vaccine we can get, and we need to get that good vaccine from wherever it comes, distributed around the globe as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Um, nothing is immune from politics. Right. Global health is not immune from politics. And as, as the Biden administration, as, uh, as an institution like the World Health Organization, although WHO is intensely political, but um, as institutions in the Western liberal, you know, sort of transatlantic order, right? You know, NATO, EU, um, it, it's good, smart foreign policy to make sure that you are making vaccine available, making choice available, so that so that Sputnik V doesn't end up being the only alternative in in places around the globe. Um, I mean, Putin is a thug. Russia is a brutal dictatorship that tortures and imprisons people for expressing political opinions and expressing religious beliefs. Um, we, we'd rather not give them a win. Well, I mean, that's a fair point. Situation. That's I mean, a fair point. I mean, Judy, the question I was going to pose or the, the comment I was going to make is something that you just said a few moments ago, and that is this, because I've been asked this question from a number of my students. Um, you know, why is the response to COVID-19 so political? And I'm like, you know, guys, you know, public health um, in, in, in broad, if you will, political science terminology is a public policy problem, okay? It's a public policy problem. So, you know, we've not devised systems of governing ourselves that have removed politics. And I'm not entirely sure we should, okay? But politics is involved, right? You know, so, you know, you're giving the example here of a comparative, you know, politics, if you will, phenomenon of, um, uh, of how, 
Russia had an opportunity to use soft power, okay, um, uh, to increase its influence around the world. Now, were there probably individuals within the Russian government who wanted to make Sputnik V available for good public health reasons? Sure, okay. Um, you know, um, you know, the sins of the father should not necessarily be, you know, forced upon, you know, every single uh, offspring within a, a, a government. But, you know, my knowledge base, what I teach is American politics, right? Um, and, you know, and I've tried to get across to students, you know, the United States as a federal decentralized form of democracy. Is it the best form of democracy? No, okay. There are other forms of democracy that are just as good, okay. Um, you know, what works for a particular nation and what have we used historically? So, you know, in the United States, we have intergovernmental relations where politics inform what is going on, right? Early on in the podcast, you mentioned, you know, we have the federal government, then we have the states, then we have local governments. And you and Nia shared, you know, the experience of, you know, your parents trying to get a shot into their arm, right? Um, and Politics is involved, right? I mean, we have, um, you know, 51 potentially different responses in the United States in regards to responding to the COVID-19. We have the federal government response, and then we have 50 different states, right? Um, earlier this month, um, you know, the, the New York Times had an article about how um, some states were really effective at getting shots in arms and other states weren't. Um, and, you know, some of the states that were effective were not states we would normally think as being all that effective at responding to a public policy problem. You know, states like West Virginia. And again, I'm not being hypercritical of West Virginia. So for well, listeners. It, from, if, you're, if you're from West Virginia, we love you. Even yes. Ozzy loves you. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Throw me under the bus. <laughs> but the larger point. The larger point here is there is going to be politics involved in the response, right? Um, and it's not necessarily good or bad per se, but do understand that responses are going to be driven by what is good politically, right? You know, Judy, you mentioned Trump pulling out of the World, World Health Organization, okay? Um, may not have made good sense in terms of responding to a public health crisis. On the other hand, was it wildly su supported by his um, uh, uh, advocates? Sure. It's part and parcel of, you know, America first, make America great, okay? Putin, right? You know, not necessarily following through with well-established drug protocols, okay? Now the rest of the world and probably a fair number of scientists in Russia, okay, we're like, oh, no, because this could this could have been an even worse catastrophe. Yeah, if it had been a bad vaccine, 
and but he had, it, and he had started putting it in arms before they even tested it. Uh, you know, like what if that had been widespread, either ineffective or worse, harmful in some way? That would have been horrible. But it did work, and then he, he got had lucky. a yeah, he got lucky. He had a window of opportunity to use soft power. Uh, and by the way, uh, Judy, for just a, a brief moment, could you explain the difference between soft power and hard power as it relates to um, uh, uh, a country's foreign policy? Sure, in 10 words or less, hard power is military power. Traditional forms of, of you know, <laughs> exerting power and influence through violent conflict. Um, soft power is just about anything else, right? It, it's use of levers of um, economy, diplomacy, culture, anything that doesn't involve guns and bullets. And, and Mr. Putin uses both, does he not? Because like one would argue that the whole Ukraine issue is hard power, right? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna show up with some dudes and some guns and some tanks versus this the vaccine, which is more in the soft power realm of, hey, don't you wanna do business with us? We have this working vaccine. Absolutely, yep. So another, another not thing, a Judy. person who's not clever, Right. One could never argue that Putin, he, he may be a thug, but he's a smart thug. He has been a lucky thug um, in oh. a lot of ways, you know, presiding over a, a country that, um, you know, relies entirely on natural resource extraction for its its wealth. And uh, lo and behold, oil and gas prices globally go through the ceiling a couple of years after he takes power. So he's had lots of money to work with. Um, but yes, also a smart thug. Um, or or you know, deft, if nothing else. are figuring out how to leverage a weak hand into, uh, into maximum gain. Yeah. Before we conclude the podcast episode, Judy, one of the things I've been fascinated about, um, and you, you briefly touched upon this uh, earlier in the podcast, um, is some of the trade-offs um, that nations internally, but nations around the world have had to kind of sort of engage in in regards to um, distribution of vaccines, um, and and again, one of the you know one of the ones that uh, I, I'm acutely interested in uh, because I focus on U.S. domestic politics is um, uh, the seeming trade-off between efficiency of getting shots to as many people as possible versus other kinds of considerations like process. You know, like, you know, who's supposed to get it? You know, which group are you in? Why are, you know, why are we placing certain people into the first wave? Okay, you know, you know, 1A, then 1B, 1C, etc. cetera. Uh, but then there are also considerations in regards to equity, okay? How do we make sure that um, historically underrepresented groups um, are not left behind? Um, and then basic eligibility criteria. Um, could you speak to some of these, what I call value trade-offs, okay? I mean, because you could make the argument at the end of the day, we want as many people as quickly as possible to get the vaccine. But that does bring into um, a very stark light uh, these other issues that we have historically struggled with in this country. 
Yeah, that's an excellent question, Augie. Thank you, because the whole idea, do you do your olds? Do you do your teachers? Do you, like, how do you, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to say olds in a mean way. I actually say that in a loving way. Um, but, like, I know that some states said, we're going to do all the teachers, and then we'll get to our old folks. And some people said, oh, heck no, we're doing all our old folks, and then we'll get to our teachers and our, and our you know, whatever. I think everybody agreed doctors should go first. That seems to have been one sort of standard one A plus or whatever. But yeah, how is that? How, how does all that work? I mean, I, I, I've had students because of their perception of law enforcement who asked me during class sessions, why are law enforcement in the one B category? I've had others who've gone ahead and said, okay, teachers don't want to be back in the classroom, so why should we be giving them shots? I mean, and, and, you know, and again, the part of me who teaches American politics thought it, it was a teaching moment, right? I mean, I could go ahead and say, you know, when we develop public policy solutions to public policy problems, there are going to be the weighing of and picking these values are more important than these values. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that response. <laughs> but I was, it was kind of sort of like, I don't know what else to tell you guys. That's what we do. Okay. You know, I mean, look at the COVID-19 stimulus package that's currently being debated in the United States Congress, right? There are things in that, you know, huge stimulus package to where some people are like, what's this got to do with COVID-19? And there are others who are like, well, public policy problems are interconnected, they're complex. So we got to look at this from a meta perspective. And in, 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 in a lot of my students, and to be quite honest, a lot of my friends and family members are like, I don't understand how I got into this group. So this conversation illustrates the extent to which it, not only is it impossible to separate politics from public health considerations, but you shouldn't try to separate politics from public health considerations, that, that you need to acknowledge that these are intensely political choices and, and you know, incorporate those considerations into, into the choices that you're making up front. Um, to kick this back up to global health, there's no better illustration of that than what's happened with World Health Organization over the years. Um, you know, WHO is supposed to be the global agency responsible for uh, a, a huge diverse array of different tasks related to global health. Its annual budget is in the neighborhood of $3 billion. Right. Chunk change, right? That, that's about what it costs to run like one sort of medium-sized hospital system in the United States. And, and that's what WHO what, Wait, has. what? I'm sorry. Did you three B as in billion, not T yes. as in trillion? Correct. Yes. For the whole Correct. world. For the whole world. And wow, 75% of that is earmarked money that comes from specific donors to go for specific programs. So WHO has somewhere between a half and three quarters of a billion dollars every year to spend fungibly, to, you know, to spend as it sees fit and not earmarked for particular programs. You know, so, so for emerging, emerging health threats, et cetera, that's all that they have. Yes, yes. So. I know um, my next job. 
I want to be in charge of the World Health Organization. So it has and this I'm going to rob countries and take all their money. <laughs> so it's got this enormous range of responsibility and nowhere near the resources required to do it. So that also there are there there are politics and you know WHO is divided into regional organizations roughly structured by continent um, you know it's decentralized uh, according to continent um, and uh, and you know local health ministers local countries capture politically the the interest of those regional WHO bodies so you know, there's lots of that kind of thing that goes on also because it's an international organization it's also very much captive to the interests of its most powerful members so it's really hard for WHO to do anything that the United States countries in western europe um Lots of accusations about China, but China actually gives a very tiny slice of WHO's budget. Um, but you know, China obviously, and China's relationship to WHO, and whether or not WHO caved into China um, at the beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic in terms of being transparent about whether or not this was a pathogen that was experiencing human to human transmission, whether it even existed at all in China. You know, there are all those questions about whether uh, WHO was too cozy with China at, at the very beginning and, and prevented us from kind of nipping this pandemic in the bud in meaningful ways. But so back to the big point that I was making about the relationship between politics and, and public health, um, WHO has been under the microscope for years um, because of this mismatch between its uh, funding streams and the amount of responsibility that it has um, because of the extent to which it has not been able to carry out a lot of those responsibilities, uh, because of some stumbles that it's made along the way. So there have been, in the last 20 years, there have been like 11 different commissions put in place to examine WHO, you know, diagnose what went wrong in the last catastrophe, try to figure out how to make things better. And the problem with every one of them is that they've all been staffed by epidemiologists, public health experts, scientists who have gone in there and, you know, within the narrow boundaries of pandemic detection, prevention, control, capacity, they've been super smart and they've made all of the right recommendations. And just from public health systems capacity standpoints, these have been, you know, exemplary bodies writing sterling reports that have made a lot of sense. Not a political scientist to be found anywhere on any of these commissions, right? No sociologists, no anthropologists, no economists. You know, they're not bringing in all of this stuff that as we have observed is absolutely crucial to figuring out how something like this was gonna work. So one of the things that they've done over the years is develop all of these global health preparedness indexes, right? That kind, and, and there are a couple of different ones, but that give scores, literally to give scores to every country to, uh, to gauge ahead of time, how ready are you for the, for the global pandemic that we all know is coming? How good is your response network? You know, how good is your laboratory infrastructure? How well trained are your public health personnel? You know, blah, blah, blah. And not surprisingly, the United States, countries in Western Europe, you know, all at the very top of the list. All of the countries that scored best on all of those indices have been the ones that have abjectly failed in the first six to eight months of COVID-19. I was going to say, all of those should be mid-ranked and like New Zealand should be the 10 on the scale yes. of one to 10. New Zealand got it right and everybody else screwed it up. 
And why did New Zealand get it right? It got it's it right. It's a tiny because, island. And, but it had leadership, right? It had effective leadership and it had social trust that you know was far broader and deeper than what we had here in in the United States, um, and and that kind of thing, the politics, right, the leadership, right. the social trust, the things that the political scientists and the sociologists and the anthropologists could have told you about, had they been on all those WHO reform commissions, um, they weren't there. So one of the things that we I hope are learning as we you know, do the sort of after, after action reviews of, of what has taken place with the response to COVID-19 is that politics matters. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend you're above it. You have to acknowledge it and build it in to your prevention and response systems. Yeah, I think your response can't start with everybody will play nice. <laughs> Two, then we start right. having a plan. Like you can't, that can't be your base assumption because not everybody, everybody's not going to play nice and everybody's not going to define nice in the same way. Right. And it can't start with as long as you have uh, high capacity, you know, laboratories, you're going to be fine. Right? right. The high capacity, you know, I'm just taking that as one example, but your laboratory capacity is a necessary condition for a good response, but it's not a sufficient condition for a good response. You, you need, you need the political actors who will harness that laboratory capacity in the right ways. Are we gonna be okay, Jeannie? Tell me we're gonna be okay. Okay, this is the part where you comfort me at the end. Like Augie often has to do after he crushes my dreams, he often has to pick me up off the floor and say, it's gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine, right, eventually? When I watched those 400,000 doses of vaccine arrive in Ghana the other day, that was the first time I thought, there it is. There's the light at the end of the tunnel that, that we, we've got vaccine, we know that we have the new mRNA vaccines that are able to adjust quickly, to be adjusted quickly to new variants of, of COVID-19 that are popping up all over the place. Um, it, it's not gonna be like we flip a switch and all of a sudden we're back to normal again. You know, this is, this is gonna be a gradual process. New normal's not gonna look like the old normal in a lot of ways. Um, some of them very good, some of them very smart. Um, but yeah, I, th I think we're now in a situation where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. I'll get to sleep tonight, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We really appreciate it. Um, maybe we could snag some of your time in the fall after we see where things are and kind of get an idea of more of that after action or at least not post, because we won't be post, but we can be way further into it. Sure, be my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to come. It's good to see you both. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this